Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Electrified bear fences for campers, using climate studies to help with visitor limits, and how climate change research can help parks plan for the future. Those and other stories appeared on National Parks Traveler this past week. One involved Lake Clark National Park and Preserve, another Big Bend National Park, and the last, the entire national park system. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org to read those and other stories about parks and protected areas. In this week's show, we sit down with John Freemuth, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, and Nada Culver, the Vice President for Public Lands and Senior Policy Counsel at the National Audubon Society, to discuss efforts in Washington to tweak the National Environmental Policy Act, as well as the Endangered Species Act. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The 1960s and 1970s saw an environmental awakening in the United States. In 1962, Rachel Carson's landmark book, Silent Spring, was published, raising environmental concerns to a national level and dialogue. The Clean Air Act was passed by Congress in 1963 in a bid to control air pollution on a national level. It is thought to be not only one of the United States' first modern environmental laws, but one of the most comprehensive air quality laws in the world. Also spurring Americans' consciousness about what was being done to the environment was industrial pollution that in June 1969 led to the Cuyahoga River in Ohio catching fire. Six months later, on January 1, 1970, President Nixon signed the National Environmental Policy Act into law. NEPA, as it's often referred to, is seen as the first major environmental law in the United States and is often called the Magna Carta of federal environmental laws. Under it, federal agencies must assess the environmental effects of proposed major federal actions prior to making decisions. Three years later, in 1973, the Endangered Species Act arrived. It was designed to protect critically imperiled species from extinction as a, quote, consequence of economic growth and a development untempered by adequate concern in conservation. Today, the Trump administration wants to revamp NEPA to lessen its requirements and do much the same to the Endangered Species Act. 
To explore those proposed changes, we're joined today by John Freemuth, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, and Nada Culver, the Vice President for Public Lands and Senior Policy Counsel at the National Audubon Society. Welcome to The Traveler. Thanks for having us. Let's start with NEPA. It has long served as perhaps the key law that protects the environment, or at least which is supposed to do that if it's followed correctly. And yet, in recent years, we've seen the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and a Dominion Energy subsidiary chastised by a unanimous appellate court for asking that a line of transmission towers in the James River in Virginia be allowed to remain, even though the Army Corps was found to have violated NEPA by letting the nearly 300-foot-tall towers be put in place without first conducting an environmental impact study. In another matter, an investigation into cell tower installations in national parks found not only that the National Park Service doesn't really know how many of the installations exist across the national park system, but that the agency is either overcharging or undercharging right-of-way and cost recovery fees. More so, the report from the Interior Department's Office of Inspector General noted that in some cases the Park Service was unable to prove that it followed the required National Environmental Policy Act steps when processing commercial permits for needed rights of way. And we've also seen a lawsuit filed in a bid to stop a coal mine not far from Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah from expanding. The gist of the lawsuit was that the expansion plan wasn't rigorously analyzed for its impact on the environment, as required by NEPA. Those are just some recent examples of where NEPA has been in the news for it not being followed. Now, NADA... In a recent blog for Audubon, you highlighted the threats NEPA faces from the Trump administration. Could you elaborate on them for us? Uh, Sure. We just uh, were presented with proposed changes to the regulations that govern how all of our agencies will implement NEPA. And the purpose of NEPA has always been kind of twofold. One is to look at environmental effects, and the other is to make sure that there is public scrutiny and public input, with the concept being better information gets you to better decisions. And what we've seen in these recent regulations is really an attack on both parts of what make NEPA work. So these changes would be sweeping. They would affect pretty much every aspect of how NEPA has been working since its issuance and really try to curtail, um, for instance, what types of analysis would happen, uh, really limiting it, providing a lot of discretion to just determine at the outset that NEPA doesn't apply, so you don't even pass go. You don't even start to do an analysis. You don't even have to tell anyone what you're doing. And then let's say you do get to do an analysis, uh, the changes would really curtail the type of analysis you might do. So saying you don't have to look at what we would call cumulative or indirect effects or the you know what logically happens when you propose, let's say, a large power line that might affect bird habitat, the enjoyment of the Appalachian Trail, um, the enjoyment of your house. So really both sides are are getting it from these proposed changes. John, can can you imagine what sort of impact these changes would have on on national parks and other public lands? Well, I think the the impacts could be a lot, and it certainly depends on, of course, um, who's in charge of the National Park Service and what their values and and um, approaches are. I mean, right now, under this administration, you have a park service without a permanent director. They've had several and a philosophy that's probably very different than the um, 
Park Service under President Obama. Uh, full disclosure, John Jarvis is director, and, and I've known John, and he's a friend of mine for a long time. And so um, you could have a very accommodating park service. I think we've seen dust-ups now more on e-bikes and where they're appropriate. And um, these policies that, that were somewhat backed off, promoting more and more recreation of the national parks with seemingly not an attempt to balance the protection of the resources. So the effects on the park service could be large or they could be uh, less than severe if a different philosophy governed the park. So that's one of those things that tends to go back and forth depending on who happens to be in charge. And I guess one of the additional problems with some of these changes is um, I understand it would create loopholes to ignore public comment. Is that the case, Nada? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, it really narrows when the public is permitted to even comment. So really narrowing those opportunities. And then the, more, the less the public has input, the less the public will have an effect. And so my concern is, you know, we've, we're not even often going to get to a situation where an agency can be accused of ignoring public comment because they're not going to permit public comment on so many more types of um, projects. And even when they are analyzing projects, for instance, they are really limiting whether they even have to look at an alternative. So I think what we're seeing is an idea that if, let's say, an, an industry um, actor, an oil and gas company wants to propose a big development, let's say right outside Arches National Park, which has happened before. Um, first, you might not even get um, to have any comment, but if you did, then the agency wouldn't even have to look at alternatives to exactly the way the company proposed it. And those alternatives and looking at the effects, as I mentioned before, of, of say indirect or cumulative effects, as we call them, would, would stretch to the, the impact on park resources. What do, what do you see when you go hiking in arches or you look into the distance or how does it affect air quality? So we're really talking about the public not even getting to have input on a lot of those types of concerns that really as the public who owns the public lands, who technically owns the national parks, who wants to enjoy the national parks, um, we should really have a say. We should know what's being planned. We should get some input. And one of the most um, outrageous, I think, changes is if we're going to continue with the energy analogy, the oil and gas company now can actually just prepare its own environmental analysis, doesn't even have to show that there's not a conflict of interest, really. So we've taken all the kind of curbs off there on what could happen. Well, I guess also one of the questions that, that comes up is under these changes, would we see cases where the public wouldn't even know what's going on, wouldn't even be aware of a proposed project next to a national park or a national forest? Yes, that is, is one of the biggest concerns is the way the regulations would change. An agency would just make a decision early on that NEPA doesn't apply, could say, we don't have enough influence on this project, or we just don't think it's going to be major enough to trigger the statute, and we would never see what would happen after that. So by really expanding that category of what can just not even make it into the process at all, we really do have a lot more situations where the public might not even know projects are being considered. And then we've also expanded through this ways for 
an agency to just decide, even if the project might fit as something the federal government could control, that it just doesn't need any NEPA analysis. So there may be some kind of notice of that, but it would be hard to find because they wouldn't be seeking public input. So both of those new interpretations of NEPA would mean a lot of things would happen without the public knowing necessarily until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. John, you know, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, NEPA, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, I mean, these are landmark environmental laws in the United States, and many countries have have, uh, followed them in, in crafting their own legislation. How big of an impact would it be if these changes come about? Well, you know, I I was talking to somebody earlier today uh, more about that BLM has now um, proposed new grazing regulations and uh, to develop and and nobody knows what's going to be in there yet and so forth and so on. But what ironically, if you want to talk about cumulative impacts, what I think is concerning people that all these proposals and changes together, the Endangered Species Act, NEPA, uh, trying to rewrite the whole regulatory framework in, t- in terms of the role of the Administrative Procedures Act and so forth, you start adding this up and you get a real challenge to the environmental era. It seems to me that uh, um, because a lot of this isn't very deliberative to people, in other words, you can argue that the ESA and NEPA could use some tinkering and and thinking, but that requires people of all different points of view to sit down together to figure out what's working and what could be better, uh, work better. That's not going on. And so what I've told people, and it's, it's more BLM centric, but it makes the point if, if, if they want to understand what might be going on and listeners can't, can't see this, they would have to look it up ironically on the park service site because BLM has currently scrubbed its own history the, the BLM logo today is a mountain with a river and, and a tree, and it's green and multicolored. The BLM used to have a logo that was black and white with a surveyor, with a miner, with Conestoga wagons and oil derricks. And it seems to me that this is what's concerning people is an attempt really to bring our natural resource policy back to about 1960 again. Um, and all of this together is leading in that direction. Now, who knows if that'll really happen, but I think it's concerning a lot of people because it's fairly systematic. It's not just one law. It's across the board. It appears to me strategic. It's not necessarily well thought out because if you take, for example, uh, relocating the Bureau of Land Management to Grand Junction, the very people that are relocated are the very people the agency needs in a centralized place to rewrite regulations, whether we like what they're doing or not. So there's a combination of sort of a systematic strategy and a disconnect going on at the same time. Well, I guess one of the questions, you know, with the the proposed changes to to NEPA, they are so sweeping. Uh, Nada, any sense on whether Congress will go along with this or, or is the administration trying to figure out a way that they can implement these changes without getting Congress's approval. And that is the strategy here. Um, And similar to what they're doing with the Endangered Species Act, they're leaving, you know, they need Congress if they want to 
actually change the language of the statute of NEPA itself. But what the administration is doing is going after the regulations that tell agencies how to implement the statute. What do these big sweeping concepts mean of looking at the environmental impacts of a major federal action? So what they're trying to do is get around Congress. And I think they know, and we believe that Congress would not support these kind of sweeping changes to the National Environmental Policy Act any more than they would for the Endangered Species Act. Those are not, these are really popular bedrock environmental laws that, yes, I guess we could talk about how to make them work better and, and reflect changes in the world since they were passed. People understand what they do. People, I think, generally agree that before the federal government goes about approving large projects that could affect a national park or our clean air and water or a national monument or a national wildlife refuge, that somebody should consider what's going on, what could happen, and ask for some input from experts, from the public. That that is just a baseline concept of how, how it should work um, in terms of what our government is doing, and, and especially on our public lands, which actually belong to all people in America. So I think we do see this attempt as how far can they push it? And with the NEPA regulations that we're seeing, I, I think from the first reviews we've, you know, I've done, some of this go, does go too far and actually will, not, will be inconsistent with the statute itself. So they can try, but there are limits. Regulations have to, and Professor, please go ahead and expand, but regulations have to implement the statute that they're supposed to be interpreting. They can't be inconsistent with it. And I feel that obviously these regulations are inconsistent with the spirit of NEPA. There's no question of that, but I think we're gonna to get to a point where they're inconsistent with the actual language of the act because they've just gone too far. Has Congress become impotent though? I mean, and I, I mentioned that in light of the the administration's effort or, or, or process of moving the BLM um, to, to Western Colorado. I know um, Raul Grijalva, the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, um, time and again has asked uh, Interior for um, information on the proposed move, uh, the, the cost of it, how they're going to offset the cost and all that. And, you know, he's continually been rebuffed. Um, what, what are the odds that the administration will just ignore the any, any concerns that Congress voices on the NEPA changes? Well, right now, Congress is impotent because it's, it's uh, run by two parties, depending on which branch, and it's so partisanized, uh, they can't do much. I mean, they'll occasionally pass an omnibus wilderness-type uh, bill that, that's not really, um, there's not a lot of conflict over. But I testified before the House on the BLM move, and that that was one set of discussions. The Senate never held a hearing. And because of their battles over appropriation, they didn't provide any new money, but they kept what was already appropriated in there, allowing this administration to argue that Congress supports it, which is a clever argument, but it's not accurate uh, in terms of what Congress really said. What you need, and it's purely political, you find a very uh, powerful Congress, should it be run by one party? I'm not saying we're necessarily fans of these, this current two-party system, but if the Democrats or Republicans had clear majorities with a president, they could be very powerful. Mm -hmm. But 
felt power is so fragmented, split up, and they're more interested in little advantages at times, I think a lot of us think, than doing the public's business. And so um, they're not Im- impotent, but they're pretty well uh, gridlocked right now, I think is the way to think about it. And I think we wouldn't rely, and I think for that reason, we can't rely on Congress to come in and say, stop funding for doing this revision to the regulations or to implementing them. Much as we'd like to see that, we certainly have seen some members of Congress already reacting to how far this goes. But I I think the fight will be through the process and as much much of the fights, as most of the fights have been um, in the courts. Yeah. We're talking today with John Freemuth, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, and Nada Culver, the Vice President for Public Lands and Senior Policy Council at the National Audubon Society. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Okay, we've been talking about uh, proposed changes the Trump administration is trying to uh, implement with the National Environmental Policy Act and the Endangered Species Act. Um, the changes to the Endangered Species Act, and, and hopefully uh, one of you can bring me up to date, um, I thought they were supposed to take effect back in September, although I think there might have been a lawsuit to 
um, stop them. But um, some of those changes, uh, for instance, looked at how critical habitat for threatened and endangered species is calculated. Um, reductions in protections for threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. And uh, it, they open the door for economic interest to be considered when a species is proposed for listing. Where do those changes stand? They are being challenged in lawsuits right now. And we've also already heard the uh, Interior Department talk about more changes to come. So. Yeah, Nita, I'd like to know, because you, you know this stuff, this whole thing about putting economic analysis in, in a listing decision, I may be ignorant here, but that seems to just fly in the face of the law itself in terms of what's supposed to be considered for a listing and then habitat uh, designation. Absolutely. That language is in the act itself that economic factors cannot be considered in making a listing decision. And yet one of the first changes we saw in these regulations was removing the language from the regulation itself on the obligation to make decisions without reference to possible economic impacts. And this was some very um, impressive attempts at fancy footwork and possibly it would result and require in a like double twisting dismount with some kind of fancy <laughs> ending. But the claim was basically, well, we didn't say you had to consider economics or that you should. We just took out the language saying you couldn't. And therefore, it's kind of up to um, the Fish and Wildlife Service to com still comply with the act that somehow that somehow this wasn't just putting a giant thumb on the scale of decision-making to take economics into account. So basically the argument was, you can take economics into account without making a decision based on economics. Mm -hmm. Only if you, so apparently you can take them into account, take them into account a whole lot, but as long as you don't write in your decision, my decision is based on economics, the yeah. claim under these regulations would be you're complying with the law. And I think that's yeah really, really far and away from the requirements of the statute. Yeah, that's a political move. It strikes me if you if you then make public, as it were, the so-called economic effects that you're not taking into account, you've just essentially surfaced that as a political issue and let other people start to, well, we can't list that because of look at all the economic harm that you just put out there that you didn't consider when you're making a listening decision. So I can see where that one's going. Right. I think the removal itself sends a very strong message of here's what you better actually be thinking of or what we expect you to take into account, even if you're not going to say that that was the basis for your decision. So it really does set the way the act would work back quite a bit. And, and if any listeners are wondering exactly what impact these proposed changes would have on uh, national parks, um, Bison in Yellowstone National Park, black bears in Everglades National Park, Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park, and moose at Isle Royal National Park. And those are just some of the roughly 150 species being petitioned for either threatened or endangered status listing under the Endangered Species Act. Um, it really does have a, a wide, uh, wide-ranging impact across not just the national parks, but all public lands and, and private lands, too, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I think it's also the timing is really disturbing. Just thinking about some of the places you just mentioned, these are places and species that are already being challenged through the effects of climate change. 
And one of the other changes that's proposed to the regulations is to really limit the definition that we use for the foreseeable future in terms of the risks to a species. Like what are the risks in the foreseeable yeah. future? And it's clear that the intent of that was to be sure that we limited the horizon of foreseeable future to not take into account climate change you know, impacts in listing decisions. So we're gonna look at the economics, but we're not gonna look at the reality on the ground of the impacts of climate change, which would affect so many parks. Now at the, the Property and Environment Research Center, um, a free market research organization up in Bozeman, Montana, Senior Attorney Jonathan Wood believes the changes could aid listed species that need additional habitat. In an op-ed piece for the Salt Lake Tribune uh, a couple months back, uh, Wood had said that the changes in the ESA um, would provide flexibility for states, landowners, and conservationists today to develop what he calls innovative ways to recover species. Uh, from Wood's perspective, um, the automatic imposition of the most burdensome regulations stymied such collaboration by discouraging landowners from cooperating or even admitting species presence on their land, the old uh, shoot, shovel, and shut up approach. Um, what do you think of his uh, perspective? W would this lead to better collaboration? Well, let me, I'll start first because, and Nate has been at some of these Western governors uh, workshops that I've had the fortune to moderate where you, they talk a lot about cross-boundary collaboration and conservation. And a lot of the speakers are these people who sat down in collaborative processes to try to uh, deal with both private and public land, habitat protection and so forth. One of the reasons they all came together is that they were frustrated um, by other strategies that weren't working. And the, to me, the irony of all of this is if you make it easier for, and I'll simplify it, one side to win, then you're not creating any incentives for people to work together. Instead, you're creating a bunch of incentives for people to try to win completely without having to work with anybody. And so I think that's a little problematic uh, to argue that somehow this is going to encourage people to work together. Uh, it's, if anything else, it's probably going to have the opposite if it looks like somebody can kind of continue business as usual, whatever that is, without having to appreciate the concerns of somebody from a different perspective. That'd be my first take on that. Didn't the sage-grouse issue um, towards the end of the Obama administration re really lead to a lot of collaboration between state, federal agencies, and, and private landowners to come up with a plan that uh, the Trump administration under Ryan Zinke threw out? And that would be one of, I think, the best examples from my perspective of how the structure of the Endangered Species Act and the understanding of what would happen if a species needed to be listed actually drove collaboration. And it, it wasn't, I think we, John and I have talked about this, it wasn't a perfect collaboration in that, you know, there were ultimate decision makers in, for instance, the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service about what would happen, but it did bring everyone to the table. We had, um, just in the federal process, 10 states involved, and most of those states were doing their own planning efforts to um, manage the greater sage grouse to avoid the need to have it listed. And then all of those states, as well as pretty much every uh, user of public lands and people with interest in public lands got involved because there was so much habitat at issue. And there was a, an honestly a real feeling that we were going to get a, a better result for the species if we could think about how to manage 
all of the activities that affect sage grouse um, in that context with input from so many different perspectives. So I do think we saw that happening. Was it a perfect collaboration in the way we might define it? No, but it certainly did lead to a lot of collaborative work of people sitting down and trying together to try to come up with solutions that would work and avoid the need to list the species. I agree. I would agree. Another piece of legislation that bears watching is the Migratory Bird Protection Act. It recently um, made its way through the House Natural Resources Committee. Nada, wh why was this act introduced and what's its purpose? Um, its purpose, and we're in very full-throated song of support over here at Audubon for that, obviously, was to address a major change in interpretation, that's our theme for today, I guess, of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, the administration has decided that they could, again, unilaterally do an about-face on how that act has been interpreted to say that we will no longer um, hold people accountable for take, for harming or killing birds, unless that was the actual intent of their actions. So really, again, similar to the Endangered Species Act, taking away that, what we've seen as an incentive to, for instance, cover your waste pits on an oil and gas uh, project to avoid harm to birds. Now, arguably, you can say, well, my intent was to run my oil and gas project, not to kill birds, so I don't need to worry about what happens. Nobody can come after me and say, I'm out of compliance with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And you know, what we've seen from that is just sweeping changes, and not only in how it's enforced, but even seeing agencies pushing back on a company saying, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to do these types of protections. You don't need to look at alternatives to your proposal that would have less harm on migratory birds. And as a result, um, again, there is a lawsuit challenging this about face, but in the meantime, the Migratory Bird Protection Act would put into law what has always until very recently been the interpretation of the law, that you can be held responsible. If you can see how your actions might harm migratory birds, you need to take the initiative to protect them. Wasn't that um, part of the original Migratory Bird Treaty Act? It was, and that's how it's been interpreted since its passage. But the administration um, issued an, what we call an M opinion from the solicitors that went through the entire history of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and then somehow tried to reinterpret it to say this is never what the act meant, despite you know decades of interpreting it this way. So should this kind of um, radical kind of radical action be needed to actually put another law in place to say yes, we really meant it? No, but that's the point we're at right now in the way this administration is interpreting it and the way agencies are now applying the act itself. There's really just been such a risk of harm to migratory birds of the protections we're losing as they are authorizing more and more projects that could harm migratory birds. So again, I think it's kind of the theme we've had today of under, you know, trying to undermine these bedrock conservation laws through regulation or um, guidance documents, or in this situation, a solicitor's memo that really they all boil down to, we, we don't mean it. We don't mean what those laws say, and we'd like to just ignore them. 
Amazing. John, is there anything else coming down the pike in terms of uh, attempts to change some of the environmental regulations and laws in the country? Um, off the top of my head, I think you've hit the big ones that we're aware of right now. Um, we'll have to see. Uh, you know, some of this stuff um, might not get done in time. For example, the attempt to rewrite BLM grazing regulations, which some of which might be all right, by the way. <clears throat> Talk to some senior BLM people that I know. They don't think they can have that done until um, post-election. Uh, even the next administration and, of course, a different Congress could decide to disapprove them. Uh, so it, some of this stuff might not actually get done as well as people think it is because the very people they need to do this have been downside, transferred, um, reduced in size, and so forth. And so uh, in a way, it's creating even more stress on the professionals that have to do a lot of this stuff. Uh, but I haven't heard of anything outside of NEPA and ESA being the, sort of the two big ones. Some of the attempt to change the whole regulatory process, which gets pretty arcane, is also going on at the same time. Um, well, I think we've seen that with uh, the the e-bike uh, rules for the national parks, where um, let, let, let's allow them in first, and then we'll, we'll consider if it's appropriate. Yeah, that's just, you know, we talked about that, I think, you and I, or I talked to somebody. That's you know, you ought to be able to experiment on that very, very uh, slowly and gently rather than just allow them because as a former ranger myself, I can just guarantee some odd things are going to happen and people are probably going to get hurt and ride where they're not supposed to. Uh, I could just see all that coming. All right. We've been talking today with uh, Nada Culver, the Vice President for Public Lands and Senior Policy Council at the National Audubon Society, and John Freemuth, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University. The topic has been uh, proposed changes to NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, as well as the Endangered Species Act, two of the country's bedrock environmental laws that date back to the 1960s and 1970s. Um, any any parting thoughts on uh, where we're going with this uh, trend in uh, the country? I hope people are just aware and where whatever they feel, they get engaged, much like perhaps they did with the environmental movement, whatever their perspective, because they need to know that all of this business is going on and it's pretty systemic one way or the other. Agreed. And obviously, NEPA, as our primary way of ensuring we get to have a say would be one of the most important um, issues to be heard on while you still can be. Well, thanks again today to uh, John Freemuth from uh, Boise State University and Nada Culver from the National Audubon Society. It's been an interesting and provocative conversation. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. Next week, we will bring you an update on how the National Park Service is working to increase the number of bison on the landscape. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.